Thank you so much for joining us. This is On Purpose, which is an Oops Minnesota podcast. My name is Sienna Forrest, and I've got my partner, Tina Christensen, here with me. And we are so excited to have our guest here today. His name is Jared Miller, originally from San Diego, California. He's an incredible pianist who works with tons of different organizations, both in Minnesota and around the country. Um, and one thing that's really super special about Jared is that he has a passion for performing music from Latin America and the Iberian Peninsula and expanding the white male canon to include artists of all different colors. So thank you, Jared, so much for joining us. Thank you, I'm excited to be here. <laughs> yeah, we always like to start off with the question, how did you get started down this career path? Because there are so many different you know, paths that artists have taken. We'd love to hear yours. I kind of fell into it because of choir. I went into high school not being in any music ensembles. I was just taking like a freshman beginner's piano class, which I was ended up being the TA for. And over my freshman and sophomore year of like playing for my friends who were in choir, the choir director kind of started to take notice of me. And I remember it was, I think it was my sophomore year, I was accompanying two friends on I'd Give It All For You from Songs For New World, Jason Robert Brown. <laughs> That's the song that like, launched my career. Um, we did that at this choir concert, probably had like a church of 200 people. And after we performed, the choir director was like, and that was Jared Miller. He's a sophomore and he will be joining us in choir next year. And all of my friends and my parents were like, excuse me, like what, what is this news? And I was like, it's news to me. Um, so I was kind of recruited into choir that way and ended up playing for, playing for my choirs all um, the remaining years of high school. And, and then when I got to college, I was on the solo track. I thought I wanted to be a soloist. And the first year was just, it was really hard for me to be motivated to do my solo work. Um, and it was, yeah, it was just a struggle to motivate myself to want to practice it. And I was playing for all of my friends for their juries and just like enjoying having all of these experiences and opportunities to make music. And at the end of that year, I, was having like a sit down with my teacher and she was just like, well, why don't we take collaborative lessons? And I was like, what is that? <laughs> like, I had no idea what that was. Um, yeah, and she explained to me and I, it just like changed my world because I just always assumed that solo pianists, like that was, that was just the track that you had to do if you wanted to do piano. And that if you were a soloist, you just ended up accompanying. I didn't even think that it would be a completely different skill set or training or anything like that. And so we made the switch and then I ended up, yeah, I ended up doing that all through college and playing for opera shows and musical theater and juries and recitals and everything I could get my hands on. And I just continued to do it. Amazing. And so that was a specific major that your school had was collaborative piano? Kind of, yeah. It was, I kind of cheated the system um, because at Olaf, at St. Olaf where I did my undergrad, collaborative piano was an emphasis that you could have if you were a BM piano performance major, which I was not. I went into the school as a BA music with piano primary. So when I, I talked with my teacher about that, she was like, if you don't care about having BM performance with collaborative emphasis on your diploma, she was like, don't worry about audition for the piano performance degree because you'd have to get in with the solo music and then audition a second time to get the collaborative emphasis. Mm -hmm. um, so I just ended up taking the course load for it instead. Nice. And it's and you're still getting jobs. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, I mean, it's on my master's diploma, so 
That's what matters. We obviously had you play for us with the Only One Project. Um, what appealed to you about agreeing to do it? I mean, being in a pandemic right now, definitely like the opportunity to make live music was a, a big draw for me because those opportunities are few and far between right now. Um, and actually hearing that Tracy Engelman was going to be in it. And it's always really cool living in the cities now to be able to do professional work with people who were my teachers, um, you know, four years ago. So I always jump on those opportunities. I think this is like the second or third musical gig that I've done with Tracy. And it's always, it's always a blast to have that experience. How was that transition going from, you know, teacher student to equal colleagues? Was it easy? I imagine with Tracy, it was pretty easy. Yeah, it's, I think because of how much I did when I was a student at Olaf, it was a pretty easy transition. I stretched myself very thin when I was a student there. And, you know, I was just like, I want to, I want to capitalize on having endless opportunities to do this. And I accepted probably way more than I should have as a student at a liberal arts college. But um, yeah, like by the time I I was a senior, I think I'd probably played for every voice studio and most of the instrumental studios and yeah, a lot of the teachers, I think, I think kind of already saw me as a little bit different than just a student. So when I when I got out of school, like, it was pretty, a pretty quick turnaround for them to start treating me more like a colleague than a student, which was really cool for me. And what a great way to gain perspective to work in all those different studios, instrumental and vocal, as opposed to maybe not spreading yourself as, th- as thin, but sticking to maybe one or two. Yeah, that, and that, that was exactly my train of thought in doing that. Like, I was aware that I was pushing myself too much, but but at the same time, I was like, when else am I going to have so many different places to gain experience? And yeah, I mean, and, and St. Olaf has such a wonderful music program. I was able to get good experience working with instrumentalists, choirs, chamber ensembles, vocalists, all of that. And I think it really prepared me for postgraduate studies and life. I don't regret it. How have you been able to pivot with COVID? Because I know, as you said, a lot of your work was live performances. So how has this, you know, year been different for you? It was really rough at first. I had a pretty completely booked summer with opera things and, and then the pandemic hit. And I think I didn't have work for like six months, um, which was really scary. But yeah, I, I ended up finding a full-time piano position at a high school in North St. Paul. So that's been my primary work. And then as we have learned, we in the music community and everything have learned more about like safety regulations and things, I've started to have more of the freelance gigs coming up. I still have a lot of recitals that I'm doing, I'm going to be doing down at St. Olaf. And those are pretty easy to work around. It's just me and the singer and no audience, which is a very strange experience, but it's been a slower a slower reset for sure. And a lot of, I would say the majority of the work that I do right now is just making recordings for people. Yeah, which is interesting because when you've never heard somebody sing something before, it's kind of tough to gauge how how you're supposed to play a piece. But Yeah, it's interesting because Tracy had asked if you would make a rehearsal recording so she could practice all, you know, the cooking with the singing. Mm -hmm. And you made it after the first rehearsal. And for you, you said it would be easier because now you had her in your ear singing. So you knew exactly what she was going to do when she needed time and where. Mm -hmm. Um, And I imagine that that is a very difficult process when you don't have any influence from the singer, especially with some repertoire. 
Um, yeah. Do you find that you have to re-record a lot of times or how do you handle that? It's come up a, a couple times, yeah. I try it when somebody, when a singer asks me for a recording, I either ask them to be like as specific as possible in their email description to me, you know, I'll, I'll, I always say like, I take no offense in micromanaging when it comes to something like this, because it, it's it's different making a recording after you've practiced with somebody a handful of times versus having never sung it with them. And, you know, everybody does pieces differently. Like one, I did Roadside Fire for someone recently and they took it at a tempo that was much calmer than what I've done with younger singers before. So it was, it was nice for me, but I would not, I wouldn't have um, assumed that that was the tempo that he wanted because the majority of the people I played it for had done it faster. I, I, if they're comfortable, I even sometimes say like, just sing me a phrase so that I can get an idea of how you do it. And I can kind of guess or piecemeal things together from there. But yeah, it's, it's been an interesting learning curve. Has there been a silver lining to all of this? Like, are you going to move into the coast, coast COVID, post COVID era, having gained something from this experience? I think so. Yeah, I'm, I don't consider myself to be a very tech savvy person. And yeah, this has made me have to know how to use a recording device. That's not just my phone or my computer, because I I bought a little zoom recorder so that the quality of my recordings could be better. Um, Yeah, and having to do, I've had to do a little bit of like video and audio editing for some projects this last year, which was very stressful for me at first, but I got the hang of it. Um, Yeah, so like, I'm, I'm glad that those skills that I've, I've had the opportunity to work on some of those skills. And I'm sure that they'll still be of use in the future because the culture of the music scene is changing now because of COVID. So yeah, very much so. And I just want to do a little shout out to Tina, who has been doing all of the editing for the launch series and only one you have learned an incredible skill. And I'm really glad that I can take advantage of it. Let me tell you, it is time consuming the first time you do it because you're learning the tools and you're learning what's possible and you're learning, you know, it's a new skill and then it gets faster and faster and it's a little unnerving because you're like, I did that ridiculously quickly. What's wrong with it? I don't know if you experienced that, Jared, especially with like making recordings where at first maybe it takes like 12 takes until you make one that you're satisfied with. And then later on, you're like, all right, I'm going to do it in one. Yeah, that's, I definitely feel that like, with the the tech side of things, for the first round of Heritage Choir thing, um, the Heritage Choir interviews that I did with Natalia and Border Crossing, uh, my job was to be the audio transcriber. So I had to listen to the interviews and type it all out and help make subtitles for it, which I thought would be easy. And it's, it's not easy. <laughs> and especially as I'm doing right now in an interview, you talk fast and sometimes the grammar goes out the window and things like that. Um, so that was really interesting, but yeah, I got quicker at it and yeah, I definitely feel that. And even with recordings, I, I just started setting a limit for myself because I, I do, I, if I, if there's like one note that I miss in a recording, I want to redo it. And, and then it takes, it ends up taking so much more time to record like a two minute long piece. So I always put a cap at like, I can record this three times once I start recording and that's it. And one of them needs to be good. <laughs> it's worked. I mean, it kind of whips me into shape, but. More like you have to be able to convince yourself that one of them is good. Cause I'm sure one of them is good. It's just you limiting yourself. So you're not hitting your head against the wall, which I still have not learned. I still yeah. take it way too far. And I reach the, the point of diminishing returns. Mm-hmm. 
and I'm slowly getting better at it, but it's really hard, especially when you know that something's going to be, you know, out in public, you know, for consumption. Yeah, it's it's different than a kind of a one-off performance type thing. Yeah, I'll mess up on stage. It's fine. They'll forget. There's a lot of times for them to like me again while I'm on stage. But in a recording, like it's so easy for someone to just click off right after, you know, you make your first flub. Um, and so they just seem more glaring. Yes, absolutely. Now, was there anything challenge, challenging for you about the recording of only one, the whole process? I mean, as we kind of discovered like my back would be to her so i'm not i'm not always used to not being able to see the person that i'm playing with so yeah i mean having to watch her in a mirror was certainly new for me i've never had to watch a reflection while i accompanied someone before but it was fun i mean it wasn't as difficult as i thought it was going to be which is good yeah we wondered about that too we're like oh he can't see Tracy and she has to have extra time to do all this stuff. And we're like, well, maybe we can set up like an iPad so that the camera, he can see her, but good old mirrors that did the trick. It ended up, it ended up working out perfectly because it didn't even come across my mind that like half of the watching that I do when I'm accompanying someone is in my peripherals. So I'm used to not, I'm even used to not like seeing somebody head on when I'm collaborating with them. So the mirror was great because I could see her completely because she was just in front of me. So in front, but behind, yeah. Do you have any like fond memories from the experience? Like you'll look back and you'll think, oh, that's how I'll always remember it. That first rehearsal that we had was really, just really like it fed my soul because <laughs> like I said, it was one of the first live rehearsals performances I've done in a while. And I just, I love that the process of getting to talk about the piece, which is something that you don't always get to do when you're a student and you should but um yeah and like that that's one of the things i love about working with tracy is that uh we both we both kind of approach it in that way of like yes we've learned it technically but then we want to have the discussion to make sure that we're on the same page musically and um yeah and you know I, we talked about what story i felt that i was telling in the piano and what what characters I was bringing out or what moods and all like the mood shifts and everything. And I loved that process. And it was, yeah, not having it for so long. I didn't think about it, but then having it again with Tracy and that first rehearsal was like, Oh man, I miss this. And I remember Wendy, the composer, she gave you one note, like you could be more like heavy handed. I think she said in mm -hmm. some of it and you did it. And instantly it was a personality change for the entire piece. And so it was really special too, to have, you know, Wendy, the composer, do that little workshop with you all. And um, was it scary though? Cause she's also a pianist. Is that weird to play a composer who's also a pianist their piano parts? I, I like it honestly, cause like this is no dig at any composers but not every not everyone knows how to write for piano. So um, I appreciated that a pianist wrote it because I knew that if it fit in her hands it would probably fit in mine in some way. I don't mind getting like criticized or anything like I welcome it because I want to learn. And so even if she'd said that I played it all wrong, it would have been like, great, tell me how to do it differently. Um, yeah, I, I was, I mean, I was glad that th there wasn't much more than just play it a little, a little heavier, like lean into the accents a bit more, but yeah, I wasn't intimidated. I was, I was looking forward to it. Um, what is it like working with a living composer versus obviously a dead one. <laughs> uh, I've never worked with a dead one before, but <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I always really, really enjoy working with living composers because it's it's a luxury that we don't get very often to get to talk to somebody about what they wrote and why they wrote it this way. And I remember I did this these two art songs of Rinaldo Moya. I don't know if you if either of you have done any of his works, but it's it's very like rhythmically intricate. I remember working on these pieces before having a meeting with him and I felt like I was banging my head against the wall trying to get all of the rhythms super accurate and you know like giving the dotted double dotted eighth and 32nd note it's due and like doing all those little things and then when I talked with him about it I asked we talked about like how faithful he wanted me to be to the rhythms and he he told me that he wanted it to be more improvisational like his his intention in writing it so specific was to write down like the improvisational feeling that he had but nowhere was that like signified in the music so like I wouldn't have known that until unless I talked to him and yeah and then that just like changed how I played the piece and yeah it's it's just always really cool to get to talk to the composers because I think that it's a it's a really wonderful collaborative experience to get on our side to get to bring something maybe new to the table that the composer didn't think of when they were writing it and and I assume the opposite too that it's it's cool to see your creations come to life in different hands you know yeah we don't think that um the language of music being written down is limiting mm-hmm. um and i've recently had that experience i'm reapproaching some bolcom pieces one from dinner at eight and it's written as all straight quarter notes but that's not how he wanted it sung but if anyone were approaching the music that way one moment he's and it he wants it to be spoken but it doesn't actually say that anywhere and you also get this feeling of like oh no no i have to write like saying what is exactly written right. um but in the writing process you're actually losing what was originally intended mm-hmm. um, so it's always it's always an interesting conversation i'm glad when the composer is alive because yeah <laughs> give you that feedback they're like oh no what i want was this mm-hmm. um, and then yeah. when you perform a lot of latin music and from the iberian peninsula is that more modern living composers or well, is it all across the board it's kind of been all across the board most of the vocal stuff that i've done has been people who are not alive yeah i, I would say a good amount of the like instrumental music that i've done has been more from living composers do you approach learning traditional music and new music differently? Fundamentally, I would say no. Um, it, it depends on the compositional style for sure. Like like this piece of Wendy's, I approached it the same way that I approached, you know, learning a Latin American song or Schubert or whatever. I, I looked at the text to make sure I knew what was being said and then learned it technically and then figured out like how, what, what story or character I was in the piano. And that that's typically how I approach songs like that. And then obviously having the back and forth conversation with my partner and making sure we're on the same page or that we're, you know, feeding off of each other's ideas. And yeah, but but at the same time, I have done new music that has required me to just turn my brain into like a calculator. <laughs> um, yeah, because I, I remember this Steve Reich piece that I did with Border Crossing and I did it with a friend and colleague, Mary Trotter, and technically it was not a hard piece. Like it was mostly held out chords and little tonal shifts and things like that, as Steve Reich is like in his music, but it was for uh, two keyboards and 
she and I weren't always doing the same rhythms and it moved really fast and the meters changed. And the process of learning that with her was like, we always say that we really tapped into our twin power during that process because she and I would spend like an hour or two a day in a practice room together, just count singing and then like conducting and playing it together and just practicing being so in sync that we could like do it in our sleep. And yeah, I don't, I don't usually try to approach um, music from being a calculator, but I it, it required it for that process because of how much there wasn't as much wiggle room in it. You've mentioned border crossing a couple of times. Can you tell me some more about that? Yeah, they, so they are a choir that I think they started up, I want to say in 2017, 2017 or 2018. Um, the director is Ahmed Ansaldua and he, the, the mission of the group is to help bridge the gap between like classical music and underrepresented communities. And they predominantly focus on performing Latin American music and uh, they have this concert series called Puentes that it's it's a bilingual concert series, which is super, super cool. And it was like amazing to get to see that the first time to go to it and have him talk both in English and in Spanish and have the program notes be in English and in Spanish. And um, those programs are predominantly music from Latin America and South America that is just like very rare. So rare music within this already not very familiar um, genre. Yeah, they're they're an amazing group. They're a chamber ensemble. They, so it's professional singers. Um, they're all paid. They're expected to like come to the first rehearsal, mostly off book, which is crazy because some of the music that they do is insane. Yeah, I've, I've gotten the privilege of working with them a handful of times because Ahmed and I were at the U at the same time together and we met um, inquire and yeah I just I absolutely love everybody in that organization and I jump at the opportunity to get to work with them whenever they give me a call. Have they been able to pivot well with COVID or are they one of the organizations that's kind of on hold? Yeah they, they did a, a virtual version of their like Messiah the El Messias concert um, which I thought was great like I was I was glued to the TV watching that and it was that's been my that's become my Christmas concert tradition is to go to that. So I was really happy to see that they were still doing it this year. I've been involved in this heritage choir project with Natalia Romero, Natalia Romero, um, which was supposed to be like a community choir initially. It was it was supposed to be a way to engage community members who were, you know, devoted fans of Border Crossing who wanted to sing or had engaged in their community sing projects before, but maybe weren't super well-trained to sing the stuff the border crossing sings. Um, yeah, so it was going to be a community choir and she was going to direct and I was going to play and then the pandemic hit, so we had to pivot. And that's what turned into this interview series that she and I worked on. The first round of it was interviewing border crossing members and community members or people that are not in the choir but have worked with border crossing before uh, and creating a dialogue between the two of them and their shared experiences and talking about like their heritage and how music plays a role in that. And it was a really, really wonderful and insightful six episodes that we did. It was a lot of work, but um, yeah, I was, I was really excited to get to do something with her still. 
Is this available that we could still watch it? Yeah, it's all on YouTube. I, I believe it's on Border Crossing's YouTube page. If I, There should be like a playlist of Heritage Choir interviews. Yeah. We'll definitely link to that. It's yeah, it was it was really great to get to do that. And I learned so much about people that I've worked with, but hadn't necessarily had the opportunity to be like, hey, tell me your life story. So that's sort of what we're trying to do, too, with these interviews, just to get to know people a little bit bit better because you see them performing, but you don't know who the person is behind that. So it's nice to kind of demystify um, and humanize artists as more than just, you know, the product that they put on the stage. Artists are humans. That's news to me. Right. Yeah. Paradigm shift. Um, Well, how was the experience with only one different from a traditional opera or art song experience? It felt pretty similar to me. Uh, Like I I mentioned, having that dialogue process of talking through the piece felt very familiar and, and then kind of more on the opera side of working on the piece and then having to add in staging and see how that affects the choices that you've been making and realizing like, oh, I need to stretch this or I need to speed this up because she's running out of breath because she's on the floor or something, you know, like, I mean, she wasn't on the floor making cookies. (laughs) Yeah, but yeah, so it it felt very familiar to me, for sure. I'm glad it felt like it went smoothly on our end too. But um, when I got home, I had so much cookie dough to bake. And as I went to wash the bowl for the mixing, I had like a flashback and I could not do it. And I had to ask my husband because I'd washed it so many times in between takes. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I just, I cannot wash this bowl one more time. I, I can't do it. But at least you had cookies. Yeah, they're my freezer. I had some last night. <laughs> <laughs> I was a little unnerved about the experience thinking it would be a little bit different because so much of what we do on stage tends to be pantomime. And sure. if this were staged in front of an audience, I don't think the actual mixing of actual ingredients and actually baking cookies would be involved, but it was the real process for this. So, and that definitely affected how you guys had to, had to put this together because we actually had to ask Wendy to insert some tacit bars to make right. it work. So Wendy could mix up her ingredients. And there's a lot of communication that had to happen between the two of you so that she could indicate to you when she was done stirring and ready to move on to the next thing. And by the end of that process, I think you guys came up with something that was really solid and repeatable. And natural too. It didn't seem like we're waiting for each other. It like parts came together so well. Would you ever perform the piece live though? I think so. I I was, I don't, I, I wonder how it would be to perform it live because kind of like what Tina just said with so much of staging being pantomime, like having this this process for this piece, it seems like the physical actions and what she's singing are so intertwined that it would be it would be strange to not see her or hear her making the cookies and you know. Um, but I would certainly be up for it if the opportunity arises, yeah. I'd be down for it too, mostly just to see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> so you were recently interviewed in the Minnesota Daily about the diversification of music. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so the story with that is um, when I was a master's student, I I had, when I was starting to plan my two recitals, my vocal and instrumental recital, I approached my professor, Dr. Lovelace, and I asked him, like, 
when when the collabs are programming their recitals do they usually program all new music or do is it sort of like a recycling type of thing because we learn we learn a lot of music when we're students there at the U and there, I think when I was there there was eight of us in the studio and we played for basically all the grad students the ensembles opera all of it so like Dr. Lovelace was like, typically, more often than not, people like to recycle sets just so that they're not overloading themselves. But there's nothing against you programming all new music. And I was like, great, I'm going to program all new music. Um, yeah, and so I, I took it upon myself to find all music by Latin American or Hispanic composers. And that, that first recital was easier to put together on my own. I, I had one outside connection that provided me with some um, songs by Manuel Ponce but other than that I was able to find everything on my own and it was it was the second recital the instrumental recital that Dr. Jessica Abazio the music librarian at the U started um, that she and I met and became involved in this process um, because over the summer I, I discovered an instrumental trio by Manuel Ponce who is a Mexican composer and I fell in love with it and I had my heart set on performing it and sharing it with the school and community and I could not find it anywhere. I searched everywhere that I, I searched to find the music for my first recital and it just did not exist anywhere. Um, and that's when I went to to Dr. Abazio and I told her my story and everything. And she was like, we're gonna look for it. And it was, it was a long process. And for a while it was looking like we weren't gonna find it. And then through her web of connections in school and in the library world, she found a cellist in, I think Tulsa, Oklahoma, who had performed the trio for an air of Ponce's like 30 years ago and happened to have the sheet music still. And she was like, yeah, oh my gosh, I'm so like, I haven't heard anybody perform it since we did it and I'd be happy to share it with you. And so she sent us the scans of the music and yeah, it was just completely by chance. It was, it was only ever published in Cuba where he premiered it. So that's why it was basically impossible to find. Yeah, and, and some of the other pieces on that recital required some of Jessica's library magic and accessibility of being able to order things through the library. It, you know, it, it allows her to go through different channels than just an individual student would. Um, and after that project, she and I decided that we would we would stay in contact and communicate and any work that I did um, that I would just fill her in on and tell her about any composers that I'm, I'm discovering or studying and she would see if she could order them for the library. Um, and this reporter from Minnesota Daily approached her about diversifying, about the work that she'd been doing, diversifying the collection. And Jessica told the reporter to talk to me about it because she and I started that together, obviously. Um, yeah, and it was it was a really great conversation. I went on many, many tangents. Uh, it's, it's something I'm obviously very passionate about. And it's it's a continuing work. How did you know about the trio existing if there wasn't any music to it? Is there a recording that you had heard? Or was it just like in bio notes somewhere about the composer? Yeah, I, I did find it in a bibliography of his works. Um, and then I was able to find one recording. There's one I feel like there might have been one or two that I found, but there's one really good recording of it out there. Um, and I listened to it probably like a hundred times over the summer. That was the soundtrack to Jared Miller's summer of, what was that, 2018? Um, 
yeah and and that's 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 how i i discovered it and i the only scores that i could find were at a library in spain and a library in france and neither of them were willing to lend it to us so big shout out to just music librarians everywhere doing the good work of digging up obscure pieces yes they seriously work magic <laughs> like yeah she was a godsend that that recital would not have come together if not for her you could have as easily been oh i want to find this trio meh can't find it bye but right. instead take that next step to reach out to your network and you know it's so fantastic to see all those connections being made. You always remind me of Mr. Rogers look for the helpers yeah. um, and I'm glad that you found a good helper and you said Jessica what's her last name her name's uh, Dr. Jessica Abazio thank you <laughs> shout yeah. out and and like like you said that's that's something that I talked to the reporter about too about how a lot of that work in finding that music and uh, learning about it, um, it needs to come from music educators because she asked me, I remember her asking me if I felt that the work of diversifying the library was enough, like if, if that was enough to bring the music forward. And I said, you know, it's a good start, but obviously the curriculum needs to change. And um, I've worked with a lot of voice teachers who don't, don't teach their students Spanish music in particular, or if they do, it's one song on their recital to add a little flavor or something. And I, I found that with Spanish music, sometimes teachers fall into like three categories of not being knowledgeable about it. And then they make uninformed decisions or like they teach their students uninformed because um, there are dialect differences, especially between Spain, Spanish and the various dialects in Latin America, um, or they're the teachers who don't know anything about it and just kind of let their students do whatever with it. And kind of what you mentioned with having helpers, like I, I've had teachers refuse to even listen to the music because they themselves have not worked on it or have not played it. I encountered that with my instrumental recital where some of the partners that I had on it, we never worked on them with their professors because their their professors were just like, I have nothing to say about it because I've never worked on it. Um, and that, that, that always makes me sad when that happens because I feel like that's an opportunity to learn then. It's an opportunity to expand outside of your comfort zone and expand your knowledge in an area that you're not knowledgeable about. And as as an educator, I feel like it's a, beautiful experience to get to learn alongside your students and yeah like that's that's kind of your job like curiosity and exploration is how I've always approached education and music in general and yeah having having the opportunity to learn alongside someone whether you're in an elevated position like being the professor or a colleague on the same recital like it's always a wonderful experience and that's that's what I've gotten to to do and explore learning this music so what i love about being a musician is it, you're constantly growing and learning you're never done your voice is never right you know it's it's yeah. it's just constant and it's sad to hear that there are some people in positions of power because that's what teachers are that just choose not to continue to grow themselves because it sends such a bad message to their own students of this yeah. isn't worthy of effort um, which I don't think is ever the case with music. It's a really great way to perpetuate the white male canon, though. Exactly. Which we are all about. Yep. 
not, not us. Um, do you have any projects that are coming up in the future or any projects from the past that you'd like to redirect people's attention to? There is a second series of Heritage Choir that will be coming out this spring. Um, so that's, that's something to look forward to. I assume it'll be in the same YouTube folder. Um, this, this time our focus is more on more on community organizations uh, related to yeah, helping um, underrepresented groups and things like that and tying that in together with community members and music as we are able. Um, and then recently I was approached to do this new Latin American art song project by a local singer composer, um, Rodolfo Nieto. So that's that's something that I'm really excited for because I've never I've never worked with him before. And um, yeah, I'm I'm getting to do new music and it's Latin American, so it's right up right up my alley and things that I love doing. Uh, yeah, I think that's kind of it in terms of major projects. Journey North Opera is going to be doing proving up in the future. Um, but that's that's a little ways ways away still, but definitely keep an eye out for that because that's going to be exciting. We'll make sure to share that stuff so that people can direct their attention to it because I think the Heritage Series is something I definitely want to check out. Um, yeah. I'm really excited about that. Tina, do you have any questions before we go to our rapid fire round? Nope, let's grill him, Sienna. <laughs> oh yeah, let's get into it. So these are supposed to be simple answers, but Tina and I uh, overcomplicate most things. So we may ask some follow-up questions to our simple questions. So okay. be prepared. Uh, people would be surprised to know that you are a nine-fingered pianist, I guess, or like nine and a half-fingered pianist. Do you want to elaborate on that a little or should we just gloss over? <laughs> I can elaborate. In, in high school, I, I had an unfortunate accident that um, left me without the tip of my left finger. So I, I had to reteach myself how to play with nine fingers and only in the last like two or, th or probably like three years now have I started to use the pinky again but um I don't have it's on my left hand and I don't have the extension with it anymore so I I still use my ring finger for most of the things that I would that you would normally use a pinky for in piano playing yeah the lower notes yeah I can't like I can barely reach an octave with my pinky but I can reach a tenth with my ring finger cool adaptability yeah <laughs> having worked with you and listen to you play you can't hear it at all like I had worked with you for a couple months before I knew that and I was shocked because you're just it, there's no difference in your playing which I mean good good for you because it's such a huge adaptation to have to make thank you I did yeah the, my my teacher at Olaf was a godsend in that regard because she she helped me so much like know my own body and we worked on Alexander technique and stuff like that so that I didn't injure myself and so that it wasn't apparent that I was not using one of my fingers. So that's that's nice to hear that it's not obvious when I play. Do you have any pre-performance rituals on the day of a show? I do try to like stay off my phone as much as I can. Just because oh. that sometimes like I get I get overwhelmed by, you know, piling up text messages and emails and things like that. So especially on a performance day, I like to make sure that I get enough sleep. Obviously I have a full breakfast because I know with performance jitters, sometimes people don't eat and that's not a good thing. Um, yeah. Staying, staying disconnected as much as I can. And then usually I, I try to do this like 
very basic Tai Chi breathing exercise before going out just to kind of center my breath and get back in my body. It's interesting because you say you want to be more like disconnected, but um, the converse of that is that you're more connected to yourself. Right. Yeah. What are you doing in the minutes before a performance begins? You know, that's a good question. Uh, especially when I have a partner, which I almost always do now, I'm usually trying to make them laugh. My performance jitters kind of went away when I started doing collaborative work. Like I still get excited, you know, my, my heart rate races a bit before I go out, but then as soon as I'm out on stage, I'm not nervous anymore. Um, but especially working with younger singers, obviously performance jitters are a huge thing and they're always focusing. I mean, singers of any any age really are always focusing on like, okay, I need to make sure I have the right placement or I need to remember this line. And they're like drilling their text and things beforehand. And so I usually try to distract them because at that point you put in the work and you should, you should be able to trust that it'll come out all right. Do you have any go-to jokes or you just kind of play the situation? I kind of just play the situation, yeah. Or, or even like, sometimes it's even as much as like telling them about embarrassing experiences that I've had. Like I had a, I played a solo piece on a recital, a student recital and at Olaf and I had a complete memory bomb. And so I just, I turned to the audience and I was like one second and I ran backstage and I got the score and like absolutely mortifying, but I'm glad I did it. Cause I, I was able to go through the performance without freaking out and making more mistakes. I was like, it's not worth it. I'm just going to go get the score. It's backstage. <laughs> yeah. Good, for you. Good thinking in that moment. Um, COVID restrictions are lifted. Everyone is vaccinated magically. What is the first thing that you do? I would probably go to a cafe and like spend a day reading there. That was something that I did a lot before COVID on my days off. I It's a way for me to be out of the house and be around people without like socializing with people. Um, and yeah, I often find it easier to focus on a book when I'm not at home, just because there's there's not a million other things that I can be doing. You know? What would you order? I am a black coffee person, but I do like getting uh, cappuccinos every once in a while and usually croissants. If there are croissants, I'm going to order a croissant. If you could give a duo recital with any artist living or dead, who would it be? I have no idea what we would perform, but my all-time favorite pianist is Alicia de la Rocha. And if I could do piano duets with her, I, I think I would be able to like die happily right after that. So that's my answer. I've never heard anything by her. So is there a, a certain recording I should check out first? Any of her recordings of the Granados Goyescas are like as close to perfect as I would describe recordings. They're just, those pieces in themselves are incredible and they're intricate and they were inspired by um, Francisco de Goya paintings. So there's already like cross-disciplinary things going on there. And yeah, she was, she was a really famous pianist that was known for championing and performing music of the Iberian Peninsula. And I think she's probably performed like most well-known Spanish composers. And yeah, those those Goyescas, her recordings of the Goyescas are kind of what set me on the path of studying this music. And is she still alive? No, she died in the early 2000s, I think. Yeah. You're carrying the torch on. I'm trying. <laughs> uh, what is one item on your bucket list? It would have been, no, because I already have that now. I guess I want a bigger tortilla press. I, I have a very small one. <laughs>
<laughs> is that not the answer you're looking for? No, amazing. I mean, I was thinking of a shopping list, but um, I love that. It is yeah. a tortilla press. Cool. Tortilla press, or I want like nice earthenware serving platters. What is on your nightstand right now? I actually don't have a nightstand. That's that's something that's on my list of things to buy still. Um, my nightstand is just a stepping stool. Uh, so what? Yeah, what's on my stepping stool right now is uh, just a speaker and usually a book. What book? I am reading the second book in Stephen R. Donaldson's The Chronicles of Thomas Covenant, The Unbeliever. I recommend it. He's he's a fantastic author. Fantastic. What is something that you're proud of? It's a great privilege to get to make music every day for a living because it's something that I love and it's something that um, has been a part of my life and my identity since I was five. And yeah, it, it's really special to me to get to do that for a living and not have to have a side side hustle sort of thing. Um, yeah, so that I'm, I'm really proud that I was able to do that. And then I'm, I'm able to continue to do that even during a pandemic. I'm proud of you too. That's awesome. Thank you. It's a huge accomplishment. It really is. So congratulations. Thank you. And lastly, do you have any advice for your younger self? Don't be afraid to share your opinions. Yeah, I was, I was always a very quiet kid. I'm a very quiet adult now still, but... Um, yeah, I'm a stewer. I like to think on things. And sometimes I think on them to the point of being like, okay, I've talked about it enough. I don't have to actually talk about it. So yeah, I would encourage my younger self to do that more before turning 20. <laughs> I think it would be a shame to interview Jared Miller without talking about his fabulous shoe collection. <laughs> It's like the first thing I noticed about you, the very first time we ever worked together, I looked down and you were wearing this fabulous pair of shoes and I instantly knew that I would like you. And it's just, they're, they are quirky, they are fun, they are amazing. Can you talk about them, please? Yeah, so I really got into buying like over-the-top fancy colorful shoes after I graduated from college because... So much of my job was wearing black all the time. And I was like, normally I would wear fun socks, but I was like, that's not enough. Cause sometimes people just see my ankles, you know? Um, so I, I found this pair of shoes online that I fell in love with. I think, yeah, I think the first ones that I had were these, like it almost, it's like a paisley pattern and it's multicolored and it's like every color of the rainbow you can imagine. They're beautiful. And I bought them and they ended up being the most comfortable shoes that I had ever worn to. They're basically slippers and they look like they would cost, you know, a hundred, two hundred dollars and they were like forty bucks. So I just I ended up buying like four more pairs of different different designs and yeah, I, I try to wear them everywhere because especially those those kind of set me on the path of there there's a time and place to wear concert black, but just because you're a pianist and like your instrument is black doesn't mean that you should try to blend into it. And so I, I, I started buying the shoes and wearing them in performances as a way to be like, I'm part of this as well. Um, yeah, and part of a, a kind of added bonus to them that I discovered is that most people nowadays when they're walking are either like glued to their phones or are looking down. And whenever I wear those shoes in public, 
I, I think every time I've worn them in public, at least one person has done like a double take to see who is wearing these like bright, flamboyant, shiny shoes. And it's always really cool when someone is looking down and they see that. And then I end up having a very brief conversation with a random stranger and trying that connection that way. It's a wonderful reason to wear brightly colored shoes. I love it. And now everyone should be looking at your feet when they see you now. Yeah, Jared, thank you so much for joining us today and talking to us a little bit more about what you do and what makes you, you. It's really fascinating to get to know you better. And I'm really proud of the work that you're doing for Latin American music and Iberian Peninsula music. And I look forward to all the projects that come as a result of that and furthering my own knowledge of composers and song repertoire. It's really fantastic. Thank you. Mm -hmm.